Well, as we move forward in this series, um, at this point in our uh, service, youth, if you're part of one of the students in the student ministry, you're free to take off to your, uh, your, your stuff, your uh, groups that are going on over in the V Auditorium. In the meantime, we are in a series here at the end of it called uh, Why Sunday? And we're looking at this as an opportunity to kind of talk about Sunday mornings and what this is. And if you're a guest here, it is a great opportunity to hear more about what churches are up to and why we do what we do. And um, I want to welcome you and thank you that you are here. My name is Greg Harris, by the way. I'm the senior pastor at All Branch, and uh, hopefully this gives you an opportunity to kind of think through uh, maybe some of the things you're thinking about as you check Olive Branch out or you discover what Christianity is about. In either way, We've been working on a series here called Why Sunday, talking about what's this deal? Why, why worship on Sunday morning? Why do we do what we do here? And two weeks ago, Stephen ta- walked us through the difference between what is Sunday and what's called Sabbath or the day of rest. And we looked at this principle of six days of working, one day of rest, and the idea of a day of celebration that we worship and, and worship Jesus Christ since he resurrected on the first day on the Sunday, when he, and Pentecost happened on a Sunday, and his appearances happened on a Sunday, all this stuff comes together traditionally to where we worship on Sunday. And so we can align that day of rest and that day of celebration together into what we do today as the tradition of church services on Sunday morning with rest after church and things like that. And so we talked a lot about that last week and how that looks and how that falls together and how we piece those pieces together. Looked at some discussion about recreation, sports, and other things like that. And hopefully if you got that to be here, if you missed any of that, it's available on our website. You can check out and listen to the podcast. Podcast there. In the meantime, though, we're going to dive into a new direction because I want to talk about worship a little bit and what this service is about and some of the tensions that are involved. Tension seems to have always been engaged in the when worship occurred of Jesus. In fact, on Palm Sunday, as Renee explained, the church went wild, or actually the people of Israel went wild, as Jesus climbed onto a donkey that had never been ridden before, marched his way into Jerusalem down one of the central roads. And suddenly people in the crowd started appearing. The disciples are yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. In other words, this is the king. Let's praise the king. And they, people start grabbing palm fronds, taking off their jackets, throwing them down on the ground, almost like a red carpet for Jesus and the donkey to march down. And a proclamation of his kingship. And so the people and the crowds are whooped up. They're excited. They're shouting. Children are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Save now. They're all excited. And up come the Pharisees. Kind of upset, a little irked by all this shouting and, uh, and ruckus going on. And they're like, hey, make these kids calm down. Tell your disciples not to say that. And Jesus looks at them and says, what are you talking about? If they didn't cry out, the very stones would shout about me. And I love that thought that, you know, if, if ever we're confused about a song, just bring a rock in your pocket, put it out there, let it sing on your behalf, or something like that. But the idea is that creation was ready to shout about God. Creation was ready to just let it loose because Jesus was coming in as king. And for us, today, we are worshiping as well. We continue that celebration that happened on a Sunday as it happened in the resurrection. We celebrate what and who Jesus is. But that looks radically different. I'm not going to ask you guys to go mutilate our palm trees outside and throw down all the palm fronds you possibly can in the room. It looks different today. And so how do we have this kind of worship? Is this okay, what we're doing? The kind of music that we're doing? The kind of way that we're doing stuff? Is this okay as Christians? Or, or should we be like doing something like the, the Episcopalians or, or the Catholic Church or, or something like that? Should it be a, that kind of a feel about church? How, how should we do church? 
And so we feel these tensions. In fact, we come in as consumers. We talked about this, that you sit in rows, you stare at screens, you think you're at the movies, sit in rows, listen to a music band, and you think it's a concert. This kind of reality that we exist in as Americans. But we also come in as consumers. We come to things because of what we get out of them. We come to things because, and we analyze things as consumers. Do I really want to purchase this? Is this really what I want? And when we do that, we're engaging in the, we're, we're really engaging in tensions, tensions of our past, tensions of our expectations. And really, when we come to this Sunday morning, as we begin to march forward in, into Easter and beyond here into the History Initiative and stuff after today, I want a ground level set. Why do we do what we do here at Olive Branch? Because there's some tensions, four tensions that I'm going to bring out. There's some others, but I'm going to talk about four of them that are engaged in this thing called Sunday, in this Sunday service as we know as a worship service. The first tension we want to look at this morning is really, we have to manage this concept of outreach and discipleship. And you go, what, what is this? Christians invariably desire to reach out and tell people about God and this good news about what Jesus Christ has done on the cross to bear our sins and his resurrection. This is exciting for us. We have a relationship with God because of this. And on the other hand, we want to help people grow up in following Jesus and being like Jesus. And so there's really this kind of conversation that occurs in churches. Over the years, people have come and gone. It, as one pastor likes to say, a lot of pastors feel like we preach to the parade. Hello, how are you? Goodbye. Hello, how are you? Goodbye. And that's kind of just how it flows through churches. And people have stayed and, and sat at Olive Branch for a while. Eventually, they've moved on to another church. They've come from other churches, and they've stayed. And invariably, you hear a couple comments. At first, they're like, man, I just love how deep the teaching is. And they love this discipleship they feel like they're getting on Sunday mornings. On the other hand, I have people who say, man, I love that you do altar calls. I feel like we're reaching people on Sunday mornings. At the same time, when people leave, I've heard people say, man, you're just too centered on reaching people and you're not deep enough. Or you're just too deep and my friends don't want to come here because they don't, they don't hear about the gospel every week. And literally, you get this kind of mix mash of the, this mess of the tension of outreach and discipleship. Which one is the Sunday morning church supposed to be? Is it supposed to be outreach? We're supposed to reach out there and do things, bring big, big crowds and lots of people coming to faith? Or is it supposed to be really, really an intimate group of people who are digging deep and really down into the word of God? And man, this is line by line. In fact, this tension shows up even more when I go to conferences. And invariably, at conferences, you hear different styles of pastors. One conference we went to was an evangelism conference. Talking to the guy afterwards, he said, oh, you know, you got to get rid of some of those mentalities that certain pastors hold. And he named a couple of guys that I enjoy listening to and reading their books. And they're very discipleship-heavy churches. And I'm just like, well, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, as long as you're focused on discipleship, you'll never see tons of people come to Christ. So his idea was you, you'd be really lightweight and, and you just, you preach well, but you aim at the non-believer so they understand the gospel. And a lot of people say, well, that's a seeker-sensitive church. On the other hand, you've got this, we want these discipleship-oriented churches, these training churches where you're line by line, verse by verse, really deep. I mean, you're just in the Bible all the time. And so you've got this tension that exists. And to me, I don't know why the tension exists. I think it's a smokescreen. Can I just be honest? I think that we create this as Christians to, for, to compensate for some various aspects. 
First of all, let's look at the text. What is the point of the church? Here's one of the main ones. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to deserve all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. People go, that's the Great Commission. That's an evangelism text, is it? Look at it again. Go into all, the only verb in this entire text is actually the word make disciples. That's weird. It says, go make disciples. It's both. There's no debate here that we should be outreach oriented or discipleship oriented. In fact, outreach or evangelism is the beginning of discipleship. We all would agree with that. In fact, discipleship should end with what? Outreach. You're not, a, you're not a mature Christian if you're not living in the same outreach mindset that Jesus Christ had when he came to earth. That actually our full discipleship includes outreach and training each other. That's why he said, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. It's both. And so what do we do with this tension? What do we do with this, this struggle? Because the question that we really land with is, which one should we do? I'm just going to tell you, really the answer is that we do both on Sundays here. And you can't do either well. Can I just be honest? You can't disciple well on Sunday morning. It, let, me, let me make it clear. Say you were here um, on Sunday morning and you were the average American attender. You would come twice a month. If you're a little better than that, you're the average olive branch. You only miss 13 weeks out of the year, out of 52 weeks. You get about maybe 40 minutes. You get about, it's supposed to be 35 minutes of preaching, and you get about 30 minutes of, um, of, of music, and then you get about 15 minutes of announcements and other kinds of things like that and other pieces. And, and so if you add up all that stuff, you, you realize that you're only getting a few hours a, a, a year in discipleship from the pulpit. That's a pretty lousy discipleship plan when you think that Jesus spent 24-7 for three years discipling his, his guys that he hung out with. In fact, we know that to really be super proficient at something, you need to put 10,000 hours into something. If you and I went to church only those, 13 hours, only those uh, 39 weeks a year, it would take you 512 years to be proficient at, uh, at discipleship, just coming to church. So me preaching longer actually helps you. But the goal here isn't, isn't about proficiency. The point is simply that preaching is not the best form of discipleship. Can you remember what you were taught three years ago? Like, I remember one of the series. That's why we do the series, why we package it, so that you have some tools to remember segments and sections and what you learn from those places. It's not just a cool packaging deal for marketing. It's literally a teaching tool so that you guys can walk away going, I remember this series back here, and we were doing what we're talking about. And when I say words like soul detox, suddenly you start going, oh, yeah, I know that. When I, you know, when I start talking about the idea of when faith begins, some of you guys are like, oh, I remember that series. So we have these pieces that help you remember things because honestly, we know preaching is a lousy medium when it comes to discipleship. The best form of discipleship is one on some. Intimate, regular communication with other Christians in a small group or in an environment in which you are one on some with people, challenging yourself to grow deeper and be consistently in the Word of God. And that it takes time and it takes a journey for discipleship to happen. And so that really, you're saying, so Greg, you don't want discipleship on Sunday mornings? Didn't say that. Because guess what? Sundays isn't the best place for evangelism either. 
I mean, let's put it this way. How many of you actually came to faith, coming to a church, sitting down, hearing a pastor preach the gospel, you came forward or you signed a card or something? Put your hand up real quick. That was you. That's how you came to faith. If you came to a church, received the gospel at church, and gave your life to the Lord. Throw your hand up. Everybody needs to participate. I want you guys to see how this works. Look around. How many of you came to faith because a family member or a friend walked you through the gospel and you understood it and you received the gospel? Put your hand up. Okay, look around. It's a, lot, a few more people. How many of you had a random person knock on your door and uh, introduce you to a tract or were shouting at you at the jury pool line and you gave your life to Jesus Christ? There's a couple. Always is a couple. And I think that's awesome because that stuff works for some people. Now, notice the desperation here. How many people came to faith on a Sunday morning versus how many people came to faith because of their parents or because of a friend? The power of evangelism exists when we engage in the world and connect with people in relationship. Sure, you can invite them to church and you can connect them with that and they may have questions, but ultimately it is usually through a friend, a family member that we are able to deliver the gospel effectively to each other. Pastors can do it and we should do it because you saw how many hands were raised. But the bottom line is you have to do both. And why I say it's a problem of laziness, when we become lazy in reaching our neighbors for, for the faith, you'll lean on me. And so I'm going to do altar calls and everything. We're just like, come on, Greg, make it happen in the last two seconds of the game. And so we, 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 get a revi- we get the revival mentality, which isn't a problem. It's like a crusade or something like that. That's good stuff. But what happens is primarily it's the relationships that build the gospel into our hearts and our lives. It's our parents. It's our friends. It's our family members. And so I'm not against preaching the gospel on Sundays. And here's why. Because really what we understand is that, this is this, that discipleship and outreach are not opposed. They're parts of the same line. We just talked about this. And so in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 through 25, we see it says this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I love those two terms, love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together. One of the few times where it says you guys got to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is this preaching thing? What is this monologue you are telling me is not a dialogue, but you want to say you want to talk about this? What is this? Except that my job is to cattle prod you into living out the truth of Scripture. Preaching is an attempt to, draw, to derive, grab your mind to make you think, to grab your heart to make you feel, and to get your will in motion. So that when we leave this building, you live what you say you believe. I cannot live your faith for you. And we cannot sit and be spectators of someone else's faith. The gospel must be existent in our hearts and our lives. We walked in and dealt with. That's consistent. And so the job of me is to stand up and say, here's what the gospel says. Here is where we are. And this is how we need to fill in the gap because we obviously don't. If I tick you off because I start talking about money and how we ought to give because God gave to us, amen, that's my job. If I tick you off because, if I tick you off because I told you sports may not be something you want to do on Sundays because you need to get rest, amen, that's my job. I take you off because I talk about prayer life and what it should look like. And you're sitting there judging and you're like, I'm not there. Look, the Holy Spirit is here to convict us, to move us forward. And that means I need to preach the gospel of discipleship to challenge you to go live it out. It also means some of you need to hear the gospel that Jesus Christ has come to bear your sins. That God loves you and that all of us in this room, every human being on the earth is a sinner destined for hell if something isn't done. And God has done something great. 
He has sent his son to die on the cross. No good works will cover off your sin. No, no repentance will do anything. You must trust that Jesus has borne your sins. It's a gift. And we must lean on that gift and receive that gift. And if you have to walk away thinking about whether Jesus Christ really truly rose from the dead in history, because that gift is true, and wrestle with that, good, do it. Join our starting point. Get locked in. Think. Use your mind. Get engaged with the questions. This is not an engagement in which I, I, I want to I move you in some manner so that you're engaging in the word of God. You're engaging in your life with the word. That's what Sundays are about. It's the push, the thrust, the challenge. So yes, we will do evangelism. Yes, we will do discipleship. That stuff happens here. But discipleship occurs mainly in our, in our small group system, in the one-on-some discipleship, in our men's and women's groups. That's where the bulk of the heavy lifting of discipleship is going to occur. And evangelism, the bulk, and the, the bulk of evangelism should occur on the everyday life of you guys at your jobs, in your streets, on your, in your families, and we will do portions of that here. Does that make sense? And so, I'm not against these pieces. I just think we need to really think about them. Especially this next one. Because all of this gets muddied in this next tension. The tension between what I call relevance and religion. We need to think about being relevant or religious. And let's be quite honest. There's a lot of people who are very, we are very religious. And religion has a tendency to feel like this is what the Bible says. This is how we ought to be. This is how we ought to conduct ourselves. Look, this is necessary. And so you'll get into lots of debates over what kind of music churches should present. You know, whether they should use lighting or whether they should be doing certain things. And, and what we have is this whole conversation about relevance and religion. And guess what? Some of you guys think the word relevance is a dirty word in a church. Others of you think religion is a dirty word in a church. Now, religion is, is this kind of ordered, uh, heartless movement through things. Let me put it this way. Every relationship that you're in requires some religious devotion. Isn't that true, wives? Don't you want your husband in some way to have some religious ways of living with you? Like they should religiously come home, listen to you, talk to you, engage with you, have a conversation with you. And that husbands, we all know that if we didn't do that and you didn't do that consistently, the relationship starts to crumble. Isn't that true? There is ritual, as we understand religion, involved in relationship. They are necessary and an important part of all relationships, which is why we challenge ourselves to pray every day, which is why we challenge ourselves to get engaged in the word every day. These are the religious aspects. Now, I want to be careful because there is a hollowness to religion. And there is an attempt to, to connect with God on your own from religion where God has already come down and connected with us. But the other thing is relevance isn't a bad word. We need it. It's necessary. Because guess what? You don't dress like first century Christians. You're not sitting on solid stone benches like first century Christians. Heck, we got a microphone on and that isn't even invented. You're using a language that didn't exist in the first century in the way that it does today. You are all culturally relevant in some way. And Paul understood this. In fact, cultural influences... Uh, culture influences how we think and live. And so we need to bridge that. We, we know that there's a radical difference between our friends who are living out in the secular world and what this book says. And that they have certain beliefs that we need to connect with and show that some of those beliefs are true in here. Some of them aren't. But that really what's going on is we need to bring this message in a manner that it's understandable, that it connects. 
And this relevance is necessary. In fact, Paul did it this way. He says, to the Jews, I became a Jew. In order, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. In other words, he put on all the Jewish garbs. He had his tassels ready to go. He had all that set up. Though to those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though not being under law, myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. So that we see Paul even shaved his head after he went through a Nazarite vow in the New Testament, in the, in the book of Acts, to relate to the Jewish people as he was going through things in Jerusalem. And he goes on, to those outside of the law, I became as one outside the law. And not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. And this doesn't mean he ran off and and started doing perverse evil acts and cussing like crazy. No, what he did is he sat down at dinner with them. He hung out with them. He engaged with them. He spoke in their cultural cultural understanding. But he wasn't out from under the law of God. He wasn't sinning. But he wasn't willing to engage. To the weak he became weak that he might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. This is the call individually for us as Christians to engage with our loved ones and engage with people at a level with them. Not to stand above and judge. Oh, No, no. The guys, we're going to get on motorcycles and ride with people. We're going to bust out guitars and play with people. We're going to turn around. We're going to engage in relevant, real conversations. And the problem is this. When the relevant becomes religious, it's time to return to relevance. That's cryptic. Thanks, Greg. Help me out. No, let me give you a story. I can see if I can flesh this out a little bit. I will take you back to the 3rd century AD. And in the 3rd century AD, there was a debate raging. Uh, roughly by the end of the third century, by, oh, sorry, the, the fourth century, 300s, the, nearing the 400s, there was a debate raging about what, who, who had what books. There were lists of the books that were out there that had been read by people in churches. Those lists were pretty well solidified by the end of the, the, end of the 300s. And so they had gathered together mid-400s to finally finalize what the New Testament books would look like. This is a long process. It took centuries. It wasn't some group of men going, I like that one. No, this Gospel of Thomas, that's ridiculous. No, they, they knew when these other books would show up. And so they had this strict protocol on how they selected those books. And they had to be based on whether the apostles had written them or associated the apostles, the age of them, whether they were known in the majority of the churches, and that the people had substantiated they were from the Spirit of God. So there was this whole press process they, they went through. Once that was done, they started binding Bibles for the first time. And they were all written in Greek, the Old and the New Testament. The Old Testament was written in Greek. It was called the Septuagint. Now, yes, I know this is a history lesson. Don't fall asleep. And so... When they took this, the whole thing was in Greek. About a century later, coming up close to the 1000s, there was this guy sitting around a monk named Jerome. And Jerome was looking at this Greek book called the Bible. And he says, nobody understands this thing because nobody spoke Greek anymore. And so, they say, he said, I want to write it in the, in the language of the people, which was Latin. And so, he, re, he went through and he translated against the church's wishes of the, the, the Greek Bible into Latin. In fact, the church was saying, you can't do that. God wrote it in the original Greek. We got to keep it in the original Greek. We got to keep it this way. But Jerome went on forward anyway and wrote out what we now today call the Vulgate. If you have any Roman Catholic background, you've heard the Vulgate likely if you went to a non-Vatican II church because they would speak in Latin from the Vulgate. That's Jerome's translation of the Bible. And suddenly, fast forward another 500 years, what was once relevant because people spoke Latin became less relevant because people forgot what Latin meant. It became the, the conversation of the scholars. 
And so when the Reformation blew up and this new understanding of the gospel came out, Martin Luther took his gatherings of Greek and Hebrew testaments and marched his way up to a hill in, 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 a, in a castle and translated the Bible into German. And that was like high treason. You didn't do that. And so when John Wycliffe comes along and he begins to preach and starts to translate the Bible into English, the church goes ballistic. The, the Roman Catholic Church goes ballistic. You can't do that. The Vulgate, the Latin, is the only way God has deemed that his word should come to us. Does this sound familiar? And in fact, it happens that John Wycliffe gives his life by being burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. That English Bible eventually gets accompanied with other English t- translations and becomes under this man named King James, known as the King James Version of the Bible, which some of you are still holding. An extremely modern, extremely relevant for their time period. Beautiful and elegant, and people read it and could understand it because that was the language that was being spoken. Fast forward a couple hundred years to the 1970s. When a new version came out that was so popular amongst the people, it started spreading all over the place called the NIV. And suddenly you started hearing people say, you can't use the NIV. It's not the authorized version. The King James Version is the only version authorized by the church. Does this sound familiar to anybody? What was once relevant with these and thous and thys, they realized need to be yous and dudes and things like that. Because what was once relevant now became religious. In fact, there was a man named Tex Mars who would stand up holding the very King James Version and say, if it's good enough for Paul, it was good enough for me. (laughs) Wait for it. (laughs) And so we have these interesting fights throughout history about what was once a relevant thing trying to make the gospel make sense to a people group becomes religious. Give you another one. Our oh-so-beloved hymns were bar tunes. In the Reformation, they would go into the bars, hear how people were singing, and mimic the bar tunes and write what we know today as hymns. And today we're like, oh, hymns are the beautiful sonnets and the wonders of God. What's this evil rock and roll stuff of the devil? Dude, bar tunes aren't of the devil? <laughs> and so we got rock and roll and contemporary, and we got, we're going to have dance music coming, so you're hearing some of these. Are we going to be like, that's evil, that's not religious music? Wait, 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 wait. Sometimes we get our, ourselves all bound up over, over relevance that has become religious. And we judge our churches and we judge, each, and we judge pastors and worship teams based on what is now relevant to reach and communicate to a culture that honestly isn't turning on classical music very often anymore. I do, but I also listen to rock and I listen to all kinds of stuff. And the reason why is because when I talk to my neighbors, they're the ones in there playing Led Zeppelin. They're the ones in there listening and playing all the Beatles music, doing all the different stuff they're listening to. And when people come together who were once non-Christians to write music about Christ, who they fall in love with, they write it in the language they've learned. And I believe that honors God, it doesn't dishonor him. And that the church is a connection. It's a group of the people who have been saved from this culture. And so that we, t- yes, we sing with rock and roll music here. And we do it together. And we do it for the sake of reaching people. And we do it for the sake of those of us who are born in this culture. Can allow our hearts beat in the very music that we grew up with and enjoy. Now, there's a debate in somewhat in this world about how loud the music needs to be. Now, I just want to clarify this. I did this first service. I found it fascinating. Um, 
How many of you guys would say the music is just consistently way too loud? Put your hand up real quick. You'd say it's just consistently way too loud. Okay, cool. Look around real quick. Another. How many of you guys would say the music is consistently way too soft? <laughs> it's about the same number that I saw last service. How many of you guys say, yeah, it's sometimes maybe a little loud, sometimes maybe a little soft, but pretty much we nail it, we get it right. So I thought. I love the fact that we're, we're trying hard. Some people are too soft, too loud, and usually that's a generational gap thing. But what I'm discovering is this is about relevance. Types of music. And you know what, honestly, we're, it, it also connects with this idea of our next thing that we're going to get into. But, and I'll talk about beauty, and I'll talk about creativity in a second. But guys, really, honestly, the music that we've all listened to is loud. That's the cultural reality. It, but it's church. And to be quite honest, I have people telling me, turn it up. I can hear my, or sorry, people saying, turn it down. I can't hear people singing. I want to hear everybody singing. And I go, I get that. I get that. And then I have people come up to me and say, can you please turn it up? I can hear myself singing. <laughs> and I don't like that. And so there's a reality here that we're all not going to be satisfied in how everything works. That's why I'm calling them tensions. But it doesn't mean we disfellowship and go run off somewhere else where other tensions will appear. What we are desiring to do is connect with people that we realize we're going to use Bibles that speak the modern language. We're going to use language and I'm going to define terms. It doesn't mean, however, that we throw out everything that's religious. We don't do that. That's why we continue with baptisms. That's why we use the word sinner. That's why we talk about hell. These are words that people understand very well, and you, they understand them even better when we define them. We don't have to abandon everything of our past in order to be relevant. But if we don't abandon worship singing, we don't actually abandon that, we engage in that. Yes, it's weird. Think about it. We're taking somebody and dipping them underwater and pulling them up. And you're going, what in the world are you doing? Like a giant bath in the middle of service. This is strange. But we haven't gone so relevant, we create the baptism app. You know, just type it in and put it over your head and act like it's sprinkly. It's not how it works. <laughs> we want to make sure that we don't lose the reality of talking about the Trinity, about doing the things like communion, of having music. These are, yes, religious and beautiful things, even a sermon. But we place them in a context in which they are understood in our culture so that people can go, I know what that means. And you're not sitting there going, I have no idea what's going on here. This is really weird. And they have meaning. And so we don't want to lose the meaning, even though sometimes we have to change the color of the clothing. Does that make sense? And here we're going to try, we try to balance those two things as best as we can. Now, that leads to a third tension, though, the tension between order and creativity. Some people like to spiritualize this. They like to say creativity means spontaneity, means the spirit is moving, and that's, this is the spirit. And other people go, if you're a Presbyterian, you're going, no, 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 no. The spirit moves when there's right order and everything's in its place and it's logical. This is the debate. Which is more godly? Creativity, spontaneity, or order? The answer is God desires order in the church and creativity in the church. How'd you know I was going to do that? Order in the church God's called for. He says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. When speaking about tongues and all the stuff that's going on in the very idea of the church, and those of you who don't know what tongues are, there'd be times people would stand up and ecstatically like shout out things like, or whatever, and um, they'd make a translation. And Paul dedicates an entire three chapters to an understanding of how that's supposed to be done in a church, the order of all that stuff in there. But his basic point is, look, let's be orderly. 
There needs to be order in the church. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And the word peace can be translated in English, order. It means both. And there is peace when there is order. And in fact, order is necessary because what we do on Sundays is we order things. Because in order is beauty. There's a team at this church in the part consisting of our piece of our tech team, our worship team, me, and a, a, a guy, who um, Stephen, who runs, makes sure everything's ordered and running together. And there's just all of us gathered together early in the week. We plan out the year. We've got all kinds, uh, no, I'll, I'll rephrase that. We plan out as far as we can. And then we kind of pull together stuff. And then we start detailing in the piece what songs we're going to do so practice can be done so that people can have their parts down so that they can present to you something that you can sing to and doesn't sound like mishmash because I don't know about you any kind of art without order is an art you don't just build something and go like we're just going to put stuff up you know that falls over chaos is not what you get beauty from beauty is found in the ordering of things and so we try hard to order our services We order the sermons. We order everything that we can so it has a place. And in that, beauty can erupt. And creativity can grow. And God has really called for order. One of the places he's called for order mostly is actually in the organization. This is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And really, this is the call that your order should exist in kind of this idea of your leadership. There should be a sense of, I hate to say this, business in the church. There's a business part to things. It's an orderly part where people gather together in order to do appropriately together. This is a reality. And when that thing's not working right, it affects everything else. Trust me. So there needs to be an order. And some people are like, well, I just don't like organized religion. Well, we're not that organized, just so you know. But (laughs) the, the idea here is that you want disordered religion? No, it just doesn't have any order, any sense. No, obviously, even God in his scriptures tells us there needs to be an order of things. But that doesn't mean it kills creativity. In fact, God longs for creativity. We see it in the Psalms. He says, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Then say, sing to him the songs you should only sing. He, he, he opens the door for creativity. He gives us the, he doesn't give us an order of service, but he gives us the elements that go into a service. In the book of Acts chapter two, we see this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That would be preaching to fellowship. That's us hanging in out before service and after service at small groups, things like that. The breaking of bread. That could be communion. That could be meals together and the prayers. That's music. That's mu- musical prayers, which is what worship is. That's, that is getting prayer in the corner. All of this stuff comes together. Now, we may not do all of that all the time, every, every week. Because it doesn't tell us you have to do this every week. It doesn't give you the exact order. It gives you the elements. And in that, you can order and arrange them for beauty and creativity. And along with the culture, then you add things in like communication pieces with video, with the way we do music, with the way we do announcements. All that stuff comes together in order to communicate clearly and in order to be able to do this stuff artfully and beautifully because God is the inventor of art and beauty. And I think it honors him when it's there. Honestly, you know why we do lights? Not to be a concert. We honestly do lights because we believe it's beautiful. 
We believe that the shading of the lights, the beauty of the screens, the conduciveness of this atmosphere ought to call us to worship God. When I can sit at a concert, a secular concert, and see people raise their hands at the music as if they are in worship, they are moved by something greater than the music and the men on stage. They are brought to a level of something they don't understand, which is the very artful and beauty of God himself that is in general creation. If the church can't bring that about, man, that stinks. And we're going to let the world create a worship environment to worship idols? We have the opportunity with the light he created, with the sounds he made, the beauty in these things. Now, yeah, we're not going to bust it out total rock concert. Trust me. It ain't going to be laser flared. That's, is there an artistic way that we can present the thoughts and light and hand movement and our singing and the, and the way that we present the music? Absolutely. And that's our goal. It's our aim to have this creativity and order come together. And that's what churches should be doing. They've been doing it for centuries. Lights are a new way that we do it. In the past, they just put stained glass up and let it shine through. Now, we control the lights to give different emotions and pieces and tell different stories. There's your stained glass right up here. It's changed. It's changed mediums. Now, the last one is this. There's a tension finally in the last piece, which is a tension between giving and receiving. And indeed, as Christians, we've talked about it for months, you should give. We need to give. As I said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. We've talked about it in in our offerings of what it means to give. We've talked about it in our serving one another, what it means to give. We talk about it when we come and we learn from the scriptures at home that we should come together and give that away. Giving is what we've been called to do. The greatest leaders in the world serve. They give. And that's what we are to be as Christ, givers, giving away of ourselves. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't receive. We also need to receive. It's so not as a consumer, but there's certain things to receive. First of all, receive Christ. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I want to tell you that you and I should probably practice receiving the gospel daily. Doesn't mean you become a Christian every day. But it means that you receive the fact that you're a sinner messed up regardless of what has gone on in your life and that it's by grace alone that you're going to enter into heaven. Not after you've received Jesus, you've got this great life and you can turn that great life into God. No, we need Jesus' cross every day of our lives. Amen? Amen? That it's a daily reception of the word of God. It's a daily reception of Jesus Christ. That we take that in and we trust again and renew our trust in the promise of God all the time and live in it. Some of you maybe need to do that for the first time. I want you to consider that and contemplate that and ask those questions and wrestle through that. But also we need to receive the word of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This word, when it comes in and lived out, it changes us, it moves us, it motivates us. Guys, why do we do everything that we do here as a church? I, we, we do it so that all of us would walk out of this room Challenged to live our faith out one more week. Inspired to praise our God throughout the week. To see the beauty of who he is. To know he's ordered and right. And that we as a church can enjoy God on Sundays and in our lives. That's what we do. All of this is bound together in that motivation that we would be challenged and pressed together to worship God. Amen? I hope that you guys can take that in and think about it. These are the tensions we live in. These are the things that we do together for the sake of God's glory. And if we can just resolve that these are done issues 
And don't let Satan work them up and cause a mess. We can get to what God's calling us to do, which is to reach this valley, to bring in knowledge, to engage in conversation, to care about people, and to serve them because God's called us to do that. I hope that's where we're at. And I hope that this has helped you kind of think through what your church experience is like. I get excited that God can use us in great ways and with so much beauty and artistry and order. I hope that you're with us there. So would you bow your heads with me, please? God, I ask that you would indeed just see our, our hearts. We desire so much, God, to be people who give and receive. We desire so much to be people who engage in the beauty of the creativity that you've made us because you are a creator God. And you're keeping it in the order that you've given us because there is a right and proper order to things. God, at the same time, that we'd be a people who remain able to communicate with our culture and be relevant, but not give up that which is the core, the message. God, help us not to become so religious that we, we can't communicate clearly. And God, ultimately, Lord, allow us to continue to train each other up to follow after you and to reach out to everyone, God, so they might not experience hell in eternity. So, Lord, motivate us in these ways, we pray. Shape us and change us that we would march out these doors ready to live out your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.